Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 162, and it's a continuation of our series associated with Perry Russo. Sorry that we ran out of time in the last episode, but today we are going to review Russo's testimony at the preliminary hearing. It was his first public debut of testimony under oath, but of course, it would not be his last. To refresh everyone's memory, given the high-profile nature of this case, Jim Garrison decided that it was the right thing to do, both politically and legally, to hold a preliminary hearing. This is a rather unusual approach to a criminal matter. That is, for the district attorney to request a preliminary hearing at all. Normally, the district attorney's office would present information to the grand jury, a process that is essentially done in secret, and then let the grand jury decide whether an indictment is in order. Garrison decided to take the extra and unusual step holding a preliminary hearing in front of a three-judge panel, and then still taking the case to the grand jury. An answer of no from either one of those mechanisms either the three-judge panel at the preliminary hearing or the grand jury review would have put an end to the process. But as we all know, he got a yes from both. Many pundits ask a basic question. How did the garrison trial proceed beyond the preliminary hearing and the grand jury proceedings? How did he get a yes How did those two mechanisms not stop a trial that took a jury less than one hour to return a not guilty verdict after listening to over one month's worth of testimony? Well, there are several things to keep in mind. First, a preliminary hearing is not a trial. It's a process to determine whether there is probable cause to indict. It's a lower threshold than the idea of finding a criminal defendant guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt. Secondly, the politics of such a case, a case such as this one, the JFK assassination, would have leaned toward a trial, even with just minimal evidence and effort being put forth in such a hearing. You see, there is no requirement by the district attorney's office to show all their cards at the preliminary hearing. Just enough to show probable cause. And I think we all know what the politics would have been like had those three judges put a kibosh on a trial. It would have looked like further suppression of the truth by the power structures in this country. So you see, Garrison had the political upper hand in this early moment of fresh chess moves on the board. Third, Most of us are not lawyers, and what most of us would not be expected to understand is that the technical legal threshold for proving engagement in a criminal conspiracy, the legal definition of that crime in Louisiana, under Louisiana law at that time, was an extremely low threshold. 
at least in my opinion. (laughs) I am not a lawyer, even though you all know I sometimes try to play one on TV. Joan Mellon lays out in her book, A Farewell to Justice, and I assume what she says there is technically correct under the then-existing Louisiana law. Well, I'll use her explanation of it now. What Garrison needed to prove, the threshold of a criminal conspiracy that would have to be proven for the jury to return a verdict of guilty, was this. Shaw simply had to perform an overt act that would further the criminal conspiracy. The behavior itself, the overt act, did not even in and of itself have to be criminal. One of the other conspirators had to be involved, and the state would also have to demonstrate that Shaw knew the general scope and aims of the conspiracy. The reason this last point is so important is that Garrison was highly criticized in the aftermath of the trial for having a lack of evidence in the case. And yet the definition that I just laid out for you states very clearly that there is a relatively low threshold that exists when it comes to defining engagement in a criminal conspiracy in Louisiana in 1963. As a juror, you can look at this one of two ways. First, it was reasonable for Garrison to bring the case forward despite the thin nature of the evidence, as he still might get a conviction under that definition. And that was acceptable if he truly believed Shaw was guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt. As a juror, I want you to think about that for a moment. I'll say it again. What Garrison had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt was not a high bar to prove involvement by Shaw in a criminal conspiracy. But somewhere along the way, someone lost sight that you have to prove that a criminal conspiracy to commit the murder even existed. And of course, that is where the whole case fell down. Obviously, in hindsight, It was nothing less than a public relations disaster when the case was lost, and especially lost when there was such a low threshold. And how does that translate? Well, if you're on the opposite side of the ledger here, the defense side, then you simply say that not only was it a low threshold to begin with, but the DA's office couldn't even prove that. A really sad circumstance and commentary on how things turned out and almost literally an indictment of Garrison and his team for the actions they took to indict Clay Shaw. Or, at least, perhaps more importantly, how they ran the trial. And there are some problems there, too, such as the witness problems that developed at the trial. For instance, with Charles Spiesel. The work to derail the myth of the lone gunman, the work to plant the seed that the government had ample evidence pointing to multiple shooters or multiple people involved that day in Dallas, well, that was clearly advanced by the Shaw trial. So, the idea of a conspiracy itself was advanced. But where was the connection solid enough between the conspiracy that surely seemed to have happened in Dallas Where was the connection to Clay Shaw and these other men? Was it simply to be relied upon, 
yes, their association with Lee Harvey Oswald, the government's undisputed answer to the whodunit, and add conversations about triangulation crossfire? Was that enough to determine, beyond a reasonable doubt, that these men, including more particularly at trial, Clay Shaw, were definitely connected to those goings-on and committed an overt act to advance the conspiracy. That part of the case is where many believe that the big black hole is. But before I say any more, again, as a juror, I will let you decide that one. But the point I just made, which hinges on whether Garrison and his team truly felt that Clay Shaw was guilty of a conspiratorial act related to the president's murder, well, that is really the most important question to answer in hindsight when trying to evaluate the relative recklessness of Garrison's actions. Remember, even if the DA has great suspicion about Shaw's involvement, indictments and trials are based on evidence. And the evidence, morally, should be there first, There should be no betting on the come, so to speak, when it comes to proper evidence supporting the indictment. So it certainly leads us back to the central question of it all. Was the trial about convicting Clay Shaw as a true conspirator, or was it about showcasing the case against the Warren Commission report and the lone gunman theory, and the possibility that rogue elements of the government may have been involved. (laughs) Well, folks, I think you know the answer. Nothing is ever not complicated related to the topic of the JFK assassination. You see, for Garrison, it was a little bit of both. I'm not defending that approach. I'm just saying. Oh, and to look at all of this from the other end of the telescope, to round out the reasons why they failed at trial despite their success at the preliminary hearing and grand jury proceedings. Well, I must add that the preliminary hearing was extremely limited in its participants and thus avoided many of the problems that arose with certain particular witnesses, such as Charles Spiesel, as I just pointed out. Oh, and all of the Clinton witnesses were discovered after the preliminary hearing. In reality, the Spiesel testimony in and of itself might have been enough to crater the entire case. Putting Spiesel on the stand was nothing less than a clearly reckless move by Garrison. A move to force Spiesel into the lineup, even though Garrison's staff knew the issues. There is also a question as to why Garrison didn't use more of the witnesses that he had discovered, who clearly had seen Ferry and Oswald and Shaw together in various combinations. That is still a little baffling to me. But Garrison's original files and personal papers are full of memorandums that demonstrate this. Why wasn't Julia Mercer called despite her absolute personal fear? She was a highly credible witness and perhaps behind Richard Randolph Carr, one of the most highly credible the garrison had. And with her, there was a tie-in to Ruby. Still, there were no witnesses anywhere that demonstrated crucial evidence linking what was talked about at the ferry party with others, with the people, other people 
whoever they were, involved in the wider conspiracy. Whether they were the shooters, whether they were other cutouts that had limited knowledge related to their highly compartmentalized involvement, etc., etc. Thus, the black hole. Lastly, there is no doubt that the government's assistance to the Clay Shaw defense team, through various means, including even media involvement along with the infiltration of Garrison's prosecution group, were all factors that diminish Garrison's ability to deliver the case in its full form. Many witnesses avoided the return to New Orleans and the obligation to testify at the trial, and many of those witnesses were aided and abetted by the federal government in that pursuit, in the federal government's desire to crater the case. It may or may not, in the end, have made a difference. I think it might have, though. Finally, Time was on the side of the defendant as the criticisms continued to mount against the DA's office and the war of words and dirty tricks, so to speak, began almost immediately. It was almost two years between the time that Clay Shaw was charged and the time that he finally went to trial. On the one hand, there was plenty of time to build more of a case by Garrison's office and continuing to gather evidence and convince witnesses to come forward. But there was also plenty of time to infiltrate Garrison's staff and dismantle the work and to threaten witnesses and keep them from testifying against Shaw. And in the end, it was the latter and not the former that won the day. Brave men do brave things every day. Garrison might have been thought to be a fool by some, and maybe even a bigger fool for going to trial before he truly had a case. But, in one sense, he was brilliant. He knew he wasn't ready, that the case wasn't ready, but he also knew he had to go. It was time, or rather time had run out. And Garrison privately thought, and he expressed it privately to others, that the case might not ever get to trial anyway, that they, whoever they were, would just kill him first and just shut the whole thing down. (laughs) But au contraire, he would have his day in court. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 162 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Today's episode is another role play by me. We're using excerpts from Perry Russo's original sworn testimony at the preliminary hearing. There were lots of legal mechanical things handled at the preliminary hearing, and to be truthful, perhaps only two material witnesses were presented by the DA's office, which included Perry Russo and Vernon Bundy. Perhaps you could include Dr. Chetta and Dr. Fatter, in support of the legitimacy of Rousseau's statements under the sodium pentothal and hypnotic states, procedures that they administered on behalf of the DA's office. Rousseau took the stand on, I believe, four different occasions, and much of the defense work was aimed at probing questions, which, in the end, were designed to discredit Rousseau. Not surprising. That's what defense teams attempt to do 
to the star witnesses for the prosecution. After all, there was not much presented by the DA during this hearing, and if they could blow away Russo's credibility at this early stage, maybe the whole trial might go away. It was a legitimate strategy of the defense at that moment. Even so, Russo, for the most part, held his own. You'll have to trust me in terms of what portions of his testimony I've included here and what I've chosen to leave out. Most of it is in, but frankly, there were many objections and related discussions between the prosecution, the defense lawyers, and the three-judge panel. And all of that is technical and boring to some extent, so I've eliminated most of it to make this episode flow a bit better and so that you can hear only the most relevant portions of Russo's testimony. Otherwise, it would also be just too long. Probably one of the most important technical issues that was argued about in the preliminary hearing, and it's worth mentioning here, is a ruling on whether hearsay testimony could be introduced at a preliminary hearing and whether testimony heard at a preliminary hearing could later be brought forth and introduced as evidence in the actual trial. Given the very real worry that witnesses were disappearing relatively quickly in the case, that there had already been deaths that were identified as possibly being nefarious, it was a very real consideration on the part of the prosecution to get some of this testimony in at the preliminary hearing in case the case was delayed and in case something happened in the period thereafter and prior to the trial. It turned out that there was almost a two-year gap, and that turned out to be an important strategic consideration in some ways. On the other hand, not much was introduced in the preliminary hearing that would have been controversial in that way. Still, it was an important point of law that they all argued vociferously on both sides. As you know, I am an N of one. That means that I can't play all these characters without making some vocal distinction so that you, as a listener on the podcast, can understand who is speaking at that moment. Who is the questioner and who is the witness? So I'll just revert back to the goofy approach that I've used on several episodes in the past. I'll read Perry Russo using my own voice so that you are clear when you hear an answer that is from Perry Russo, the witness. I'll try to replicate Garrison's voice like I did in a previous episode, using a deep baritone but without any sort of Cajun accent. And finally, I'll use a deep baritone combined with a totally butchered Cajun accent to represent Irvin Diamond in his cross-examination of Russo for the Shaw defense team. From what I can tell, Diamond didn't sound like what you are going to hear and I don't want to disparage him in any way. He did a fine job at the trial, actually. But frankly, this is a podcast, and this is the easiest way to ensure that you know who is saying what, and maybe he'll get a kick out of it, too. Obviously, the words will still be his, verbatim, from the transcript of the hearing. The three judges occasionally intervene, and I'll just simply explain what they did and 
what they said using my own voice, but hopefully it'll all be clear enough to you as a listener. Be forgiving, please, as I know this is a corny way to do it, but it's my hope that adding just a tidbit of levity to a dry court proceeding will coach you along. Enough to listen to what is about an hour's worth of testimony from Perry Russo while he is under examination and cross-examination. And let's face it, a lot of people talk a lot about this trial, but in the end, we really should listen to the words, the exact words, of those who are in the thick of it. I must admit that I was really looking forward to doing this episode with my brother, Dennis. He was up this week visiting me, and we recorded about three-quarters of it with Dennis using his own classic Cajun imitation voice. Unfortunately, much to my chagrin, after we completed the work, I realized that I had set the microphone up incorrectly, and the recording quality was totally unacceptable. He's gone back home now, and it's now too late to re-record the session. So the re-record that I did do today, well, it includes just me. Sorry, Dennis, but you'll get another chance soon. I hope when we do Dean Andrews. <laughs> all in all, it was a lot of fun to do that session with you. The outtakes are pretty funny, by the way, I must admit, some of which are actually too risque to share with the audience. <laughs> but we got a good laugh, didn't we? Thank you, brother. Okay, here we go. We'll start with Jim Garrison in his opening questioning of the star witness, Perry Russo. Order in the court. How old are you? 25. I want to ask you a few questions. When I do, speak clearly as you can so the judges and defense counsel and everybody in the courtroom can hear you and just relax, and I think you will get used to it in a moment. What is your occupation? I work with Equitable Life Assurance Society, primarily in Baton Rouge. And what is your education? I completed high school and gone through five years of undergraduate work at Tulane and Loyola University, and I have gone on to one year of law school at Loyola University. Will you speak a little more distinctly so I can hear more in detail, and tell me about the college part of your education? Well, I had completed high school at McDonough and then went on to Tulane University for two years of undergraduate work in political science. Thereafter, I switched over to Loyola University and finished off my requirements for a degree program, which I received from Loyola University in political science. And then I went to Loyola Law School for one year. Did you get your undergraduate degree? I got a Bachelor of Social Studies in political science. In what year? 1964. Where were you born? I was born in New Orleans. Did you ever know a man named David Ferry? Yes, sir. If I were to show you some pictures of David Ferry, do you think you could remember him? Yes, sir. Remember the man? I show you a photograph which has been marked for identification S-10, and I ask if you can identify the man in the picture. Yes, sir. Who is this man? David Ferry. And I show you a photograph which has been marked for identification S8, a picture of apparently a dead man on a slab. And I ask you if you can identify that man. Yes, sir. 
Who is that man? That's the same David Ferry. Do you recall approximately when you first met David Ferry? Just approximately? About 1960. How long did you know David Ferry? I have known him since all the way into 1964. Would you tell us the background of your association with David Ferry? And Perry, speak louder and more distinctly. Well, I had occasion to have a friend who, at the time, was in the Civil Air Patrol, and he had made mention of, at this point, the defense attorney, Mr. Diamond, would object. I object, you honors, between any conversation between this man and his friend. Mr. Alcock from the prosecution would intervene. Your honors, this is a preliminary hearing. Hearsay is admissible in preliminary hearings. Mr. Diamond would then say, The new code upon the trial of a case, if it takes place and the witness is out of the state or unavailable, that witness's transcript of testimony is admissible in evidence. And, of course, they would go on to have a long debate about all of this, and we're eliminating that, so we're going to get right back to the examination by Mr. Garrison. Perry, I want you to go back to where we were when you were telling me about your relationship with David Ferry and restrict your testimony to what you actually heard yourself. Now, tell us how you first met David Ferry and what you recall about your relationship with him. Well, a friend of mine had had some trouble with his family, and I knew the family on a rather well basis. And through this friend, I met David Ferry who was a friend of his. That was the first acquaintance I had with him out in the airline section or in that Kenner section, out in Kenner at a Civil Air Patrol meeting in which whether or not he was a leader, I I don't know. But he seemed to be at that time and he conducted the meeting. And after the formal meeting, I was there with some of my friends. Thereafter, He put on certain demonstrations so as to impress me. Where was the meeting held? I don't know the address. It was out in the Kenner area. That is all I know. What kind of demonstration are you talking about? One, he put on a demonstration of his hypnotic abilities. He claimed to have the best of this, or he knew more than most people knew, and he used one of the boys there and hypnotized him, and he took a pen uh, or the end of an easel, not an easel, but the thing you draw circles with, with a long point in it, and he used that and putting, sticking that instrument into the boy's skin and also through his hand. I was highly skeptical about this, and I felt the tendons to see if there were any movements, and the boy did not remember anything and had no experience or recollection of pain. So, I believed David Ferry at that time, at least for that claim. Continue to testify about your relationship with David Ferry. We went on, and after a while, I alienated this friend from Dave, and at the encounter we had with him, which was on Bourbon Street, Dave happened to bump into us. I was with some other friends of mine, We more or less talked the boy into telling Dave something, that he did not want to see him, which he said, I do not want to see you anymore. He says, 
I am through. I don't want to do anything more with the Civil Air Patrol anymore. And Dave asked to speak to him alone or almost demanded it. Of course, the people I was with, we, we already figured out what we were going to do. And we said we would be there if this friend had any talking to do. Well, Dave got very angry and told me he would kill me. Had you ever been to David Ferry's house? He lived at two different places, and I had been to both places. Which place do you remember? The first time I had seen him was out at the Kenner place. I don't know the address. Kenner? Yes, sir. And the second or subsequent times I saw him was up on Louisiana Avenue Parkway. Do you think you could recognize pictures of the place on Louisiana Avenue Parkway if you were to see them? I am sure of it. Mr. Russo, I, I show you a picture marked S9, which appears to be the exterior of an apartment building, and it's marked 3328-3330 under the door. I ask you if you have ever seen that building before. Yes, sir. Who lived there? David Ferry lived in the upper section. He lived in the upper section of this building? Right. Have you ever been in that building? Yes. I show you a picture which has been marked S5, which appears to be the interior of this apartment, and I ask if you have ever seen that before. Yes, sir. Where is that? This is in the hallway facing the street. The hallway of? Of David Ferry's apartment facing the street. I show you a picture of which is marked S6 and ask if you have ever seen this, the interior of this apartment. Yes, sir. This was David Ferry's what I call his living room. I'll show you a picture marked S7 and ask if you've ever seen this room. Yes, sir. That was what I called David Ferry's dining room. It was adjoining to the living room. When you say what I call, you mean it appears to you to be a dining room? That was my terminology for it. That it was the dining room. Right. I show you a picture which is marked S4 and which also appears to be the interior of the portion of the house, and I ask you if you have ever seen that before. Yes, sir. As what? That is the hallway that led to a back entrance and also to a bathroom. Whose books are those, to your knowledge? All the material in there, I suppose, belonged to Dave Ferry. Did you ever see those books before? I have seen books of all sorts up there. And I'll show you a picture which has been marked S3, which appears to be the interior of a house or apartment, and I ask you if this looks familiar. I remember Dave Ferry's apartment. He had a coffee table, but I'm not absolutely sure that this is the same one. He had a coffee table. But you cannot place that particular coffee table? No, I would not be willing to say that. Can you tell us the year that you were there? I had gone. He had come to my house, and I had gone to his on many occasions during 1963 and some in 1962. Do you recall anything unusual that happened in the fall of 1963? Well, Dave, during the summer of 1963, if I might back up a month or so, during the summer of 1963, Dave Ferry had passed over to my house on several occasions, late at night, which was his custom. And at that time, he had introduced me to some of his friends. 
which was all right with me, and he also gave me an open book invitation. At this point, there was more wrangling between the attorneys. We'll skip that and go right back to more examination by Garrison. Perry, continue now from where you're all about to proceed. Dave Ferry had given me an open book, so to speak, invitation to come to his house when I wanted. Dave Ferry and I had an arrangement that we each could come to each other's house whenever the other was in, and that was the arrangement we were working under. Many of my friends met Dave at my house, and some of my friends went up there with me to his apartment. It was during these months, September and the month before, that he showed to me, or what he felt, what he indicated, that he was obsessed with Kennedy in one form or another. Indicated what? Can you make that clearer? That he was obsessed with Kennedy? Now, Perry, I direct your attention to 3330 Louisiana Avenue. And do you recall anything unusual happening in this apartment in the fall of 1963? I had gone up on several occasions, and Mr. Ferry had some of his friends up there, during which time I saw clippings of the president, which Dave carried around with him, and newspaper clippings, pictures of President Kennedy, and there was, subsequently, there, there was much talk and deliberation there. Do you recall anything unusual happening during a visit on your part to this address in 1963 in the fall? Well, somewhere around the middle of September, I had an occasion to go to Louisiana Avenue Parkway, his house at Louisiana Avenue Parkway. And at that time, I walked in and there seemed to be some sort of a party that was in progress. That was my estimation. People were sitting around drinking and talking, and there were maybe eight or ten people there at that time. Then, later on, as the party dissipated, some of the people began to leave, and then it narrowed down to three people besides myself who had to remain, because I had no ride. So it was these three who sat up there, and it seemed it was no longer a party. Who were these three people besides yourself that remained? There was David Ferry and a person who I had seen in his house on three or four occasions, Leon Oswald. Would you pronounce that last name again more clearly? Oswald. Oswald? Yes, sir. Leon Oswald? Yes, sir. That is the way he was introduced to you? Yes, that is the way he was introduced to me. Who was the third party? The third person was Clem Bertrand. Clem Bertrand? Yes, sir. Do you see the man you knew as Bertrand in the courtroom? Yes, sir. Will you point to him? Now the witness is pointing to the defendant. Describe the color of the coat he has on. Brown. Will you describe the color of his hair? White. Who introduced him to you? Dave Ferry. What name did he describe this man to you as? Clem Bertrand. All right. Now, going back to the other party, who was introduced to you as Leon Oswald? Do you think you can recognize pictures of Leon Oswald if you were to see him? Yes, I do. Perry. 
I show you a picture which has been marked S1 and which has described on the back the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. And I ask you if you have ever seen this man before. Yes, sir. And when did you see him? I saw him on three or four occasions at Dave's apartment. And under what name was he introduced to you as? Leon Oswald. I'll show you a larger picture which has been marked S2 and which is entitled Accused Assassin a President Shot Down. And I ask you if you can recognize anybody in S2. Yes, sir. Who do you recognize? The man in the middle. Who is that man? It is the same person that I saw at Dave Ferry's apartment. Who was introduced to you as? Leon Oswald. Would it be correct to say, then, that after the rest of the party left, that you found yourself with three other people, and they were David Ferry, the defendant whom you have identified, and the man introduced to you as Leon Oswald, who you now identify as Lee Oswald. Yes, that was all the people that were present. Will you then tell us what happened? Ferry, Dave Ferry, took the initiative in the conversation, and he paced back and forth on the floor. Dave Ferry began the conversation, and after some few things about my presence being there, then he paced back and forth, and he was talking, and he talked to both Mr. Bertrand and Mr. Oswald. Continue. Well, during the discussion, it centered around the fact that in the assassination attempt, they would have to use diversionary tactics. And this was Ferry's favorite expression as he walked at that time. He raised his hand, showing the triangulation of crossfire involved that would have to be required, and he pointed to this finger and this finger, saying that there would be three people, or at the very minimum, two involved, but necessarily three, he felt, and that one of them would shoot a diversionary shot or another, maybe two, one or two would shoot diversionary shots, and the third was the intended direct hit or the good shot. That is the way he phrased it. Thereafter, one of these three people on the scene would then be, would have to be, you know, termed termed as scapegoat. He called them that, a scapegoat. In other words, one man had to be sacrificed, so the other two, or the other one, it just depends, but there necessarily had to be one. That was the point he made. Did you say that one had to be sacrificed? If there were three people, one had to be sacrificed. If there were three people and there could have been one or two people in this, if two people, definitely one had to be sacrificed. You mentioned triangulation of crossfire. Did he indicate what kind of weapon? He didn't talk about weapons as such. He talked about guns. But I mean no weapons, like pistols or rifles or guns, just guns. Now... Who participated in the conversation with David Ferry about the assassination? Mr. Bertrand and Mr. Oswald. 
Is that the same Mr. Bertrand who is sitting here? Yes. And what did Mr. Bertrand have to say about that? He didn't. He listened during the majority of this conversation. Now, it got to a second phase, my impression. It just changed the mood a little bit. And Ferry talked excessively about the availability of exit. Of exit? Yes. Exit of what? Exit of whom? Once the act had been committed, you had to get out. Now, Ferry had worked up two proposals. One was that this man, first of all, I I have to back up a little bit. This man who was to be sacrificed, who was to take the brunt, would give just enough time for these two, or one, whatever the case was, to escape. Ferry was the pilot. Not of this, but he was a pilot in the past, had been at Eastern Airlines. In the past? Yes, sir. He said that they would either go from where they were at at the time to Mexico and refuel, and then on to Brazil, or they would fly directly to Cuba. He talked a while about the risks of flying directly into Cuba because of the fact that the people there might shoot them down, not knowing who they were. And Mr. Bertrand argued with him about the possibility that as soon as the shot was fired, the world would know about it. And if they attempted to land in Mexico to refuel, that there was no way in the world they would get out from Mexico. What did Bertrand suggest? Ferry offered Bertrand an alternate solution. The alternate solution was that they were able to be in the public eye. Not necessarily these people, but Mr. Ferry, Mr. Oswald, and Bertrand were to be in the public eye on the day of the assassination, making sure they were making a speech or there was enough people that were around to witness that Dave Ferry was at such and such a place and at such and such a time. Did David Ferry mention where he was going to? Dave Ferry said to me about making a speech at Southeastern. Where is Southeastern located? In Hammond. In Hammond? Yes, sir. Did Mr. Bertrand say anything about where he was going to go during the assassination? He said that if this is the alternative, he will go on business with his company. Did he indicate where he would go? To the West Coast. To the West Coast? Yes, sir. Now, just to make sure, doubly sure, you told us about a man named Bertrand discussing the possible assassination of the President of the United States. Would you stand up a minute and come down here? All right. Now, I want you to go stand behind the man who you saw there and who you are describing as Bertrand and put your hand over his head. And the man who was discussing the problem of egress and put your hand over his head. All right. And at this point, the witness stepped down and put his hand over the head of the defendant, Clay Shaw. Thank you. You can go back to the stand. At this time, the witness was turned over to Irvin Diamond for cross-examination. 
Join us in episode 163 when we continue the testimony of Perry Russo. There, you'll hear the cross-examination, a long one, by Irvin Diamond. It's a lot, but it's interesting to listen to. Treat it as a bonus episode if you like, but I think it's important to listen to many of Russo's answers. Thank you for listening to episode 162 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.